Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. Now here's this week's episode with our lead pastor, Corey Engel. Well, guys, we are finishing today a message series on the feasts of Israel. And if you're a brand new guest here at Harvest Springs, we're, we're glad you're here. There are seven feasts that God mandates for the nation of Israel, and it, it comes out of a book in the Old Testament called Leviticus uh, ver- chapter 23. They're all laid out there. We've talked about six of the seven, and today we're wrapping up the final feast of the year for the Israelite, which is called the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? So, if, uh, again, if you're kind of new to the, this little message series, just to kind of catch you up a little bit, there are these seven feasts, they're broken up into three kind of major feast groups. So there's the spring feast, there's three of those. There is a feast in the middle, which is called Pentecost. And then in the fall, there is three feasts, and they're all kind of lumped together. If you were going to talk to the Israelites uh, and you mentioned the, the feasts, they would go Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. The feasts that are kind of connected to those, they would just say, okay, so the, the spring feasts are the Passover feasts. Ultimately, this, the Pentecost, the one that happens in the summer, that's just one feast, so everyone would understand that. And then the three fall feasts, right? You've got the Feast of Trumpets, you've got the Day of Atonement, and you have the Feast of Tabernacles. They would just lump all of those into ultimately the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's not that there aren't separate things to remember inside of the spring feast or the fall feast or the summer feast, but ultimately they kind of clump these and group them together. So you've got Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And what we are going to look at today is this final feast that ultimately brings everything to a place of finality. It kind of wraps up the year. It's kind of like Christmas is for us, so to speak, right? You know, on January 1st, you get the new year. And so we live, 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 do our year. We get through the winter, we get into the spring, we, you know, into the summer, and then we get to the fall. And then, you know, Christmas is kind of like right at the end. It's kind of a culmination of all of it. And we kind of look back and, and see how that year is. And then we start it all over again. Well, that's kind of what the Feast of Tabernacles is for the Israelites. It was a kind of a culmination of their year. If you, uh, if you have your notes, you'll notice there the fall feast. We're just going to focus kind of there. Remember the spring feasts are all fulfilled in Jesus, uh, the Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of first fruits. That's all summed up in Jesus. And if you want more information about that, those first three messages are available on our website. You can go back and listen to them. Uh, then there's this middle feast called Pentecost. That ultimately is all fulfilled in the Holy Spirit's God giving the Holy Spirit to the church. On Pentecost, that day, we understand this is God's gift to us, and we're going to talk more about that spirit today as we kind of get to the end. 
But the fall feasts, these three feasts in the fall, are all kind of prophetic in nature. They are focused on what is to come, not necessarily fulfillment of what has already been done. It's a look forward, okay? And so when we talked about the Feast of Trumpets, that started kind of the the three feasts. That Feast of Trumpets was a day where they would blow the trumpets and call people to a period of repentance and restoration called the Days of Awe, these 10 days of repentance. Ultimately, they were all to, to signal people to get ready for the coming day or the Day of Atonement. We talked about this last week. And the Day of Atonement was when uh, when God would kind of reset the nation of Israel and he would reset his temple, basically make everything kind of fresh and new. And so that's what would happen on the Day of Atonement. And it was a day of restoration. It was a day of making things right. It was also a day of judgment. And it was on that day that they believed that God would ultimately determine whose name was written in the book of life or whose name was written in the book of death. And so that's when sin was ultimately judged in their, in their view. And then five days after that would come the Feast of Tabernacles. If you notice there uh, in your notes, kind of mid-page, the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated five days after the Day of Atonement. All of the Israelite males were required to travel to Jerusalem. And when they would get there, they would set up what were called booths or sakats, okay? And these, uh, or they would also be known as tabernacles. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a moment. But it was a seven-day period where they lived in these little booths or these little tabernacles, and they would celebrate during these days. This wasn't a time of mourning. This wasn't a time of sorrow. This was a time of joy. This was a time of gratitude. In fact, the seven days were often known in Israel as the days of rejoicing or the season of joy. There were certain things that they would, uh, you know, be required to do. Many times when they build their little tabernacles and their little tents, they would have loose uh, leaves kind of on the top so that at night they could look up and see the stars. And part of that was uh, to help them remember uh, God's grace. And as well as these living in these tiny little tabernacles was all about remembering what they had to live in when they uh, were leaving Egypt and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. When they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they lived in these temporary shelters and they had to be willing to, you know, able to pack these things up. And basically they lived in little tents and they would pack these things up. And as God would move them and go to different places, then they'd stop and camp and they'd set their little tents back up. And this is how they lived for 40 years. And so uh, living in these little booths or these little tabernacles was a reminder of the shelters they had to live in, in, in their exodus out of Egypt. Now, unlike the spring feasts and the summer feast, the fall feast, ultimately this feast of tabernacles was a, was a culmination of the harvests. It was a period of gratitude and thankfulness for all of the harvests that had taken place over the course of the year. If you remember from the, the 
the spring feasts, as we talked about those, when we got to the feast of first fruits, right, the barley harvest was the first harvest of the year for the Israelites. It happened in the spring. And so during the Feast of First Fruits, they would go out, they'd tie a little uh, ribbon around a, a little section of their crop that would be set apart unto the Lord. Then on the day of the Passover meal, they would cut it down, they would wrap it up, they would put it away aside, and then ultimately, uh, uh, over the course of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would start, and then they would bring it on that third day. Uh, they would bring it to the priest, and the priest would raise it up and wave it before the Lord symbolizing this first fruits of a harvest that it was to come. We talked about how that was all, prof- that was all uh, fulfilled in Jesus. As they uh, moved forward, right, there was a 50-day period between the Passover and then the Pentecost. Pentecost was also a first fruits harvest but it was a different harvest, right? So the, are you, are you catching me? Are we, are we following here? So the Feast of first fruits that was in the spring, it was a harvest of barley. Then in midsummer, they harvest their wheat. And so they would take that little first fruits, they would harvest it, they would grind the wheat, they would make two leavened loaves of bread, and they would bring that to the temple, and on Pentecost, that would be what they waved or offered to the Lord. It was a first fruits offering of their wheat harvest. So after they presented their first fruits offering in the spring and in the summer, ultimately then they would harvest the rest of their crop. But the fall feasts are not first fruits offerings. There are four fruits that are kind of understood to be uh, celebrated, the harvest of which is celebrated in the Feast of Tabernacles. And we won't get into this deeply, but one of the things, for instance, that they had already harvested, that they would be celebrating the harvest of at the Feast of Tabernacles was grapes. Okay, so grapes would come due mid-July or so. They would be ripe, and so they would go out and they would harvest their grapes they would take the grapes in, they would put them in wine presses, they would stomp on them and remove all of the, the juice out of them, and they would collect that juice, put it into, uh, you know, the, uh, the wine skins, and they would begin the process of making wine. And uh, wine, as it ferments, it would be about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles that some of that wine from the, the wine presses would start to be ripe. And so during their times of of celebration, they're actually starting to experience some of the fruit of the harvest that year. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was to celebrate the harvests, not just a future harvest, but the harvest that had taken place. It was to look back at all that God had done and to celebrate his faithfulness in it all. It was to not look forward into a future harvest, but to look back and say, God has done so much for us. He has given us a great barley harvest. He has given us a great wheat harvest. He's given us a great uh, fruit harvest. All of these things we can now celebrate the fruit of because we've experienced the goodness and the provision of God. So this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, is not focused on things that are uh, 
you know, future harvest, they're actually celebrating the harvest that has taken place. In a lot of ways, this harvest would be somewhat like our Thanksgiving. Because Thanksgiving comes in the fall, right? If you're a farmer, you've probably gotten to the end of your harvest by Thanksgiving. You've, you know, kind of got it all stored away and it's kind of towards the end of November and you just stop and just look at all the things God has done for you and you thank God for another great year. That's what the Israelites would do on the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a feast of celebration. It was a feast of joy. They would even do things like light shows at the temple where the priests and the Levites would, you know, use candles and torches and and basically all of the, the people of Israel that would gather there. Remember, it was all the males that would have to come and live in these little booths and they'd be all over the city and they're temporary. There's like tents. You guys live in tent? You know, uh, campers out there? How many of you guys like tent camping? Okay. How many of you guys are like, I'll go camping if there's an RV involved. There's my wife right there. I was like, <laughs> we bought this tent when we were like first married. I don't think we ever used it. Maybe one time. But uh, so, so this, this idea of living in kind of this temporary structure for seven days, that's, that's really what all the Israelite males would do. And, uh, and then it's during that, that that light show would happen and all the people would stand in awe and experience the joy of God. Now, that was the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's, there's a few more things that happened inside of it, but that's kind of a general overview. The larger question is this. What does that mean to me? What does that mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us as a community of believers? Well, let's, let's look at it a little deeper. Ultimately, the Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder, or it calls us to mind to remember a greater tabernacle. It's not just that we come and we remember the Exodus. What were the people of Israel supposed to remember? It actually was a period when they would have to move and they would orient themselves around the presence of God. What ultimately happened is that when they left Egypt, what led them out? It was either during the day, it was a pillar of fire or, or a, pillar, a pillar of cloud. During the night, it was a pillar of fire. And so God was the one who would lead them. And if the, the cloud or the fire moved, right, they moved. They packed up their tabernacles and they followed after the presence of God. Remember, Moses basically tells God, if you don't go with us, if you don't lead us forward, we're not going. I don't want to go. Like, we are orienting ourselves around your presence. And what's very interesting is that when they get to the bottom of Mount Sinai, God's mountain, right? As he goes up there. God gives Moses instructions for what he called the tent of meeting, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Okay. So God gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle and Moses goes down, they build the tabernacle and then God's presence actually comes down and dwells in the tabernacle, in God's sacred space. It was from that point on that all of the tribes of Israel would orient themselves around 
the tabernacle. In fact, there were instructions. We used to think, you know, for me, I used to think that, you know, it's just a big glob of people, you know, all kind of, you know, moving and, you know, there's the, you know, so we're all just kind of wandering in the same direction. Actually, when God gave instructions around the tabernacle, he also gave instructions to the tribes of where they were to camp in relation to the tabernacle. So some tribes were to camp to the east of the tabernacle. Some tribes were to camp to the west of the tabernacle, some to the north and some to the south. Here's a picture of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle as kind of a a replica you can uh, see. This is basically the place where God says, I will allow my presence to dwell there. Inside of the tabernacle was a place called the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it was where God's presence manifests. We talked some about this last week in the Day of Atonement, okay? So it's this place, it's like God's home, and God is now coming to dwell in the midst of his people. So it's the tent of meeting. So let's talk about that for a moment. God's tabernacle is where he chose to dwell with his people. This now brings the Israelites back to an understanding of Eden, the wilderness, and the restoration of God and his kingdom. Let's take a look at that. It's in your notes at the bottom of uh, the front page. In Genesis chapter 3, right? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God's creation. Ultimately, we see the creation of Eden. Eden is not just a garden. There was a garden in Eden, but Eden was God's home. It was his domain. It was where God dwelled, right? It's his kingdom. And inside of his kingdom was a, a, a garden. And that's where God ultimately brings men to it and gives them a job to, to rule and reign inside of that, to manage inside of the garden, okay? Eden was the place that God created man to dwell and to dwell in God's presence, to live in the paradise of God, okay? So that was how we were created. A problem happens, however, is that mankind rebels. We decide to do our own thing. We don't want to listen to God or have listened to his instructions. And because of our rebellion, mankind is cast out of Eden into the wilderness, So because of sin, mankind is cast out of God's dwelling place. So God's dwelling place is Eden. Mankind is cast out of it now because of our sinfulness. But here's what happens. God ultimately, once he gives instruction to Moses, uh, you know, the, the law, the covenants, he enters into a covenant with his people. Guess what God then does? He establishes a framework for his territory, his sacred space, to now exist in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of where mankind is now wandering. Okay, are some of you guys putting this together? God's presence now, his tabernacle is with us. It's with us. He has now set up his tabernacle in our midst. And like I said, there were instructions on where the people were to camp. The different tribes 
had to kind of camp with their tribe members. And here's what it would look like when they would camp. If we go back to it. Now, isn't that interesting? God gives instructions about certain tribes, for instance, like Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and uh, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, right? There, uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, to the, I believe that's to the north, and uh, Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim to the west. So here you go. You've got this all kind of laid out. You're, you're kind of uh, processing through it all. It is fascinating to me that the tabernacle is the center of it all. And ultimately, if it laid out this way, it would look very much like a cross. The next graphic you'll see, the, the center was reserved for the Levites. They were the servants of the Lord and those who would take care of and maintain and facilitate the worship and God's sacred space. Here's what you would see. This is with numbers to kind of give you an idea that that whole idea of a cross. Some of you guys already saw like it's a cross right there. Well, it's, it's not actually uh, kind of just trying to make it work because if you actually took the numbers of the tribes, you'd see that to the east, which everything kind of is oriented like we often orient ourselves north and south, east and west, right? We kind of think of north and south being up and down. That's kind of the primary way we think about it. For the Israelites, they would orient themselves around the east, right? They, they understand, right? The sun comes in the east. There's uh, lots of uh, uh, east passages. So like the east and the eastern direction was significant to them. And so they would orient around the east. And what you have is the camp of Judah, which would have about hundred. Uh, 86,000 members in it. They're on the east. To the west, you have 108,000 uh, tribal members. To the west or the north and the south, you have about 150 to 157. So roughly, uh, they're a little more equal on those sides, but a little longer. It's This is basically a cross. And that's how God could orient his people. And what is in the middle? What's in the midst? His presence, his tabernacle. It was his sacred space. So the tabernacle ultimately began or allowed for the people of Israel to understand that God was establishing a place for his presence in their midst. No longer are they just alone out in the wilderness trying to figure it out. God has now come to them. He is now with them. Now there's a word that we often throw around at Christmas time around Jesus that, that means God with us, a fulfillment of God's presence for us in the midst of our wilderness journey. And it's the name Emmanuel. It's what ultimately is what we call Jesus because he also becomes God with us. But it's not now a building per se. Now it is a person. Notice what you see is on the backside of your notes. Jesus then becomes the tabernacle in the midst of his people. Don't believe me? Listen to John chapter 1, verse 14. Now in John chapter 1, what do we know? We know that John is talking about Jesus, and he uses the word, the word, for Jesus. In the beginning was what? The word. And the word was God, and the word was with God. Uh, you know, this is all talking about Jesus. And in verse 14, here's what it says. 
the Word, Jesus, became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. Some of your translations, that word right there, some of your translations actually translate that word, he tabernacled with us. The reason they would translate it tabernacle is because it's the Greek word, skinoo, to fix one's tabernacle or tent, to put it up. To have one's tabernacle, to abide or live in a tabernacle or tent, or literally tabernacle. Okay? So John here, as he's talking about Jesus, says that he was he was made flesh, he came as a human being, and he tabernacled in our midst, among us. He dwelt in our midst. He now is the tabernacle amidst his people. We now orient ourselves around his presence. You putting it all together? But it doesn't just stop there. It's not just that Jesus becomes the tabernacle because what ultimately happens, Christ then ascends to the throne of God and he sends something else in his place. He sends the Holy Spirit to us. But what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19? Or do you not know that your body... Somebody touch your body, right? This thing right here. Your body is a what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. That word temple, naos. It's the Greek word, if you notice there, it says used of the temple at Jerusalem, but not only the sacred edifices, uh, but consisting of the holy place and the holy of holies. This is the, the inner place where God's spirit dwells. That's the word Paul uses for your body as a follower of Jesus Christ. You have become a temple, sacred space unto God. His presence now dwells inside of you. If you thought the tabernacle in the wilderness was sacred space and it deserved to be treated holy, uh, treated as holy and with honor and respect, if you thought that Jesus, his body, his temple amongst us, living in us, should be considered holy and precious and revered and followed, we also have clearly in the scripture this idea that we now purified holy because of the atonement and sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our life. We as believers become that sacred space. We become the tabernacle of God. Now, as we think that through, it should cause us, it really challenge us to keep in mind just the preciousness and the holiness of who God has created us to be. That the work of Christ has purified us, and all the work of the atonement of Jesus has now purified us and cleansed us from all unrighteousness, it says in 1 John 1 9. It's cleansed us, it's made us able to become now the dwelling place of God. And that's why Paul says, 
Treat your body as holy. Respect it. Honor it. Probably don't put so many chicken nuggets from McDonald's into it. Uh, just, Just thinking out loud here. But it ultimately is not just about our present reality, because what is actually something we should look forward to is a coming day when God will ultimately restore Eden, and then we shall tabernacle together with God in his kingdom. If you haven't read the end of the Bible, if you haven't read the last couple chapters in the book, that tells us how it's all going to end and what all is going to take place, you will hear this language of tabernacle and temple and now being in God's presence. He is the center of everything. You will hear this language because it's all about now a future redemption that is to take place, a future restoration, a future time when we will tabernacle again with God like we did in Egypt. So I'm going to have the band come out, and we're going to close this final message just by simply reading Revelation 21 and 22. Now we're reading two chapters, so we're going to read a little bit, but know that this is a future projection, an understanding of what is to come. It might be a lot sooner than we think, right? The, the, the starting of this journey But let us turn to Revelation chapter 21, and I'm going to read, starting in verse 1. Then John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Before I go any further, if you read chapter 20, do you know what you'll see? The culmination of everything the final judgment, the great white throne judgment of God. And when God is doing all of this judging and and kind of the Day of Atonement stuff that we talked about last week, when God does all of that, you know what the people say? God, you have done it all. It's right. This, This work that you've done is great. And they begin to worship God for the work that he had done, which is the very thing you see in the Feast of Tabernacles, it's remembering the work of God and celebrating all of his goodness. And so now the people have gathered together and what do they see? They see the newness of God's restorative work. And he says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The what? The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will dwell with them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. And the first things, right? The former things, all that present stuff is all now passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. 
Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my child. So there's a promise there that we can come to God and he will sustain us and give us the living water. But if we don't come to him, if we harden our hearts towards him, there also is a promise. In verse eight, it says, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immortal persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Following this, God sent some angels to go measure things and you get a, 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 a kind of a detailed description of everything that's there. Where we skip forward to verse 22, John says, I saw no temple. I saw no temple there in heaven, right? In the paradise. I didn't see a temple. There was no tent of meeting. Well, why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. That word temple there is the same word there in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, naos. Again, that means that sacred inner place of God's presence. And John says there was none of that because God was there. He was with his people. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illuminated it and its lamp is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It says, Verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 1. And then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Now remember, this takes us right back now to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. The tree of life, you know, in chapter 2, too. The tree of life was that place because of mankind's sin, we got cast out and then the tree of life became the thing we could not access. But now everything is new. Everything has been restored. And now what does mankind have access to? The tree of life. It says that there was the tree of life there on both sides of the river. It was bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true said the Lord. 
the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. It says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words and the prophecies of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But the angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And then he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. This is Jesus speaking. I'm coming quickly, and I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside of God's presence are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And then Jesus speaks again. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. This is in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life do so without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the word of the prophecies of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I don't know if you caught, but that last chapter is filled with invitation. It is filled with an invitation to you and to me to come to God, to come to the tabernacle, to come and to dwell in his presence and I don't know where you stand with the Lord today, but maybe as we've been talking and preaching, you've just sensed that, you know what, I need to, I need to get right with God. I need to come to him. I've, I've distanced myself. I've pressed myself away from him. I've refused to follow him. But you realize that today God is inviting you to come. And if that's the case, I want to give you an opportunity today to just come to him, to surrender to that invitation and say yes to the Lord. So with every head bowed and eye closed, if over the course of this message, you've just been sensing the, the Holy Spirit moving your heart, drawing, him, drawing you to himself, 
Would you just respond to that invitation by slipping up your hand and saying, God, I hear your voice calling me to come and I'm going to come. I see those hands. I see those hands. Thank you. We're just coming to God. We're allowing his presence to now come into our lives and to be the tabernacle of God. So God, for those who have raised their hands to you today, we pray, God, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. That may they be filled with hope, knowing that you haven't just left them in the wilderness to wander, but you have come and you have tabernacled among them. You have sent your son, Jesus, to tabernacle among us. You have sent your spirit to tabernacle within us. And Father, may we, together as your people, look forward to the day when we will again tabernacle with you, when we will come into your presence and see the fulfillment of all things. I pray that all of us in this room would bow our hearts before you, that we would humble ourselves, make ourselves pure and holy and righteous, that we would honor the temple of the Holy Spirit in which you've given us. And we pray ultimately, Lord, that out of our lives, you ultimately will bear much fruit. We ask this all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us as we close? Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.